0: I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, September 27th, 2022. Coming up, we hear from Dr. Tanya Alderete about the impact of air pollution on the gut microbiome of infants. And from Larry Gold about using artificial intelligence to predict the folding structure of complex proteins. The Environmental Protection Agency recently downgraded the air quality in the Denver Metro and Northern Front Range area to severe non-attainment for ground-level ozone. In this first feature, KGNU's Shannon Young talks with an author of a recent study about the health impacts of air pollution.
1: The effects of poor air quality on respiratory health are well-documented, but how particulate matter interacts with other organs of the body is less known, Joining me now is Tanya Alderete, Assistant Professor of Integrative Physiology at CU Boulder. She's helped to document how inhaled pollutants can affect the gut microbiome in various age groups, most recently in babies. Tanya Alderete, thank you for joining me today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Before we get into the details of your latest study, let's start with the basics. What is the gut microbiome and what role does it play in human health?
2: Yeah, so the gut microbiome is a community of bacteria. And well, we have bacteria living everywhere on our body, but the gut is a place where we have a large amounts of bacteria. And these bacteria living in our gut play important functions that help aid in our own health. So bacteria can help with our immune system development, help control inflammation or contribute to increased inflammation. And it's been linked with many health outcomes like obesity, type two diabetes, neurodevelopment, so we're just beginning to understand the role that the gut microbiome plays in human health.
1: Now, how does air pollution affect the gut microbiome?
2: Air pollution, we can inhale air pollution, particulate matter that's in our environment. And these this particulate matter can reach our gut through inhalation and diffusion from our lungs, where then once in the gut, it can impact gut bacterial communities, which is what we hypothesize is happening. So it might, for example, disrupt some bacterial communities, making it less of a hospital environment for them to live in, or it might actually make it a better environment for certain bacteria to grow. So this is an area we're just beginning to understand.
1: I was wondering about that, because to me, this was completely new. Uh, Just how recent are the studies linking air quality to the, the bacteria in your gut? And how advanced is it? So there's been some epidemiological work early
2: on, probably around 2017, 2016, around that time, where they were linking just associational studies with increased air pollution exposure being linked with flare-ups of intestinal bowel disease or Crohn's disease. And so this is what really got me interested for for the potential role that inhaled pollutants might have on our gut. And so following these studies, I conducted a small pilot study that looked at around 50 young adults from Southern California and just asked the question, is there any association between the air pollution that these young adults were exposed to and the bacteria that we saw in their gut? And so we found that near-roadway air pollution exposure was associated with specific bacterial taxa that have been linked with obesity and type 2 diabetes. So to my knowledge, that was the first study specifically looking at air pollution and gut bacteria. Since then, there have been a few other studies looking at air pollution and the gut microbiome. And one study has found that bacteria in the gut may mediate the associations between air pollution and risk factors for type two diabetes, which was really interesting. And then since this time, we followed up our original work in that small sample, and we used better sequencing methods to be able to look at the bacteria living in the gut in a little bit more detail down to the species level. And we again found that ambient air pollution exposure was associated with gut bacteria in these young adults. These were also in Southern California once again, and then given these findings, I I, understanding how important the gut microbiome is and early development where the gut microbiome is rapidly developing within the first two, two to three years of life. I wanted to know whether we saw these associations even sooner than what we were seeing in young adults. And that's why we conducted this study where we looked at six months of age.
1: So let's get a bit more into this study uh, on babies, right? You mentioned you had already established yeah. a, a certain degree of connection in young adults in that same area. And now this recent study looks at babies. These babies were from a study group of healthy mothers who had agreed to breastfeed their babies for at least three months. Were you surprised by the conclusions given the combination of seemingly favorable conditions? Well,
2: I'll I'll just make a couple points of clarification. So the, the women that were recruited into this study were otherwise healthy, but they did have a range of body mass index. So some had overweight and some had obesity. Um, so we had a, a range of pre-pregnancy body mass index in this cohort, and they indicated an intention to breastfeed for an extended period of time, which is why we recruited them into the cohort now this their particular characteristics didn't make me any more or less surprised regarding the associations that we observed and their babies at six months of age and i think that's because we had already seen associations in young adults that were also relatively healthy as well with a range of body mass index so i guess since we know the microbiome is developing in early life and there's just not a lot of bacteria early on because it's in the process of becoming populated with gut bacteria, that was one factor that made me a little bit more surprised that we saw associations so early because it wasn't like it was as diverse of a gut microbiome as we see in adulthood. But I I think pretty much what we found is that these associations exist early in life and are consistent with some of the findings we saw in young adults.
1: And have you looked at how babies with perhaps low birth weight or or babies who are formula-fed have fared? That
2: is definitely a future area of investigation. We did not have many infants in this cohort that had a low birth weight. We actually recruited that, such that participants in the study were not born prematurely. So we don't really have the ability to look at that in this particular cohort, but I think that would be a very interesting question because we know babies that are born early develop differently in early life. Uh, We do have information regarding early life feeding practices such as breastfeeding and introduction of solid food as well as supplementing breastfeeding with formula. So this is something we intend to look at down the road. Is it potentially that those infants that are breastfed and breastfed longer might not show the same associations that we see with air pollution as infants that were not breastfed or breastfed for a shorter period of time. And this is something that I would hypothesize to be true, given that we know breast milk is an important pre and probiotic for the developing infant microbiome. So when I get asked, what is it exactly that we can do to help offset some of the potentially negative effects of environmental exposures on the developing microbiome, I think a smart move to do would be to continue to breastfeed as long as possible. And I know that that is difficult for some women, but if you have the ability to breastfeed, continue to do that would be a good call.
1: And correct me if I'm wrong, but something I gleaned from the study was that it was possible to identify which babies live next to high traffic areas based on the presence of nitrogen dioxide in their guts.
2: Maybe it would help to just spend a little bit of time talking about how we assessed air pollution exposure in this cohort. So there are strengths and limitations to our approaches. The strengths of the exposure assessment that we did in this cohort is that we had full residential address histories. So that meant if a child were to have moved with their parents in the first six months of life, we accounted for that. If they moved to a different region, because we know as you move to different parts of just the same city, you might get different exposures. So we accounted for that and we used their residential address histories to estimate their exposure at their home address so that's a strength but at the same time this method has a limitation which is that we don't have an actual accurate estimate of what that individual is exposed to at all times of the day so for example if the infant left the home and went to some kind of daycare facility in early life we would have missed that or stayed with another family member we may have not captured that or sources of indoor air pollution exposure, which we know can be cooking indoors or cleaning products, for example. So we were able to assess their exposure based on these estimates and the first six months of life. And you mentioned NO2. So some of the estimates that we're able to gather from their addresses included exposure to particulate matter as well as nitrogen dioxide. And nitrogen dioxide is a marker largely of traffic emissions in Southern California. So with these exposure estimates, we could, we did have their exact location as to where they lived, but we didn't classify them as living close or far from a busy roadway at this stage. We just used these exposure estimates at their home address. That being said, the closer you might live to a busy roadway would result in any larger exposure estimate at your residence.
1: How common is the knowledge, for example, in medical schools of this link? Like, to look, for example, at how close families with health problems live to freeways.
2: Now, that's not something I can directly speak to since I'm not a clinician, but I think from the clinicians that I do work with, there's growing awareness of the importance of how your environment impacts your health, something known as social determinants of health. It's the environments we live, work, and play. And so I think there's a growing appreciation that beyond individual choices, like say diet and exercise, the places in which you live can really impact your health. So I think there's, we've, as you mentioned in the opening uh, introduction to this, that we know air pollution can have really harmful effects on cardiorespiratory health. And I think that's well-established. I think there's still growing awareness in the clinical setting that air pollution can contribute to obesity, as well as some predictors for developing type two diabetes. And now this study, although it's very early, Um, indicates that there might be impacts on the microbiome as well.
1: The cohorts that you've studied, both the young adults and the babies, are based in Southern California, which does have notoriously bad air. Are there any plans to replicate this study or to investigate this hypothesis in other cities, such as, for example, I'm thinking Mexico City, which has very high rates of diabetes and very bad air? Thank you for that question. It's not
2: just Southern California, as you mentioned, that has high levels of air pollution. We know that based on current recommendations for air quality, that 99% of the world's population is living in places with unhealthy levels of air pollution. So this is something that really needs to be looked at in other geographical regions as well. We are currently working on a replication study here in urban Denver, Colorado, and we just sent out our samples to be analyzed for the bacterial composition that we see and their guts, and we're hoping that we can replicate some of the findings that we observed in Southern California. I'm not aware of any studies in other regions that have specifically looked at air pollution in the gut microbiome other than the one I previously mentioned, and I believe that study was in China. But as far as Mexico City, I do know there's been studies linking increased air pollution exposure in children with some neurodevelopmental outcomes. So it'd be really interesting to know whether the gut microbiome is playing a role in those observed relationships as well.
1: And finally, what can families in areas with routinely or seasonally poor air quality like Denver Metro do to minimize harm to themselves? This is something I actually think a lot
2: about myself as well, because there are certain things that we can do to help protect our health. And there are certain things we can't control. We can't control fire season. And we get large amounts of particulate matter in the air outside of our homes, or if there happens to be just a really bad ozone day, which we suffer from a lot here in Colorado. Those are things that are beyond our control, but we can do things for our own personal environments that can help mitigate or decrease our exposures. And that can be simple things like looking at the air quality index before you go outside to exercise. So you try to pick times of the day also around, let's say commuter traffic where you might get lower exposures. I think with COVID, we've all come to appreciate the importance of indoor air quality as well. So purchasing low cost air filtration systems for your home that you can place in your room while you're sleeping at night could be a great way to also decrease exposures. And then there's things just like opening your windows if you're gonna be cooking, avoiding secondhand smoke exposure. All of these are complex mixtures of inhaled pollutants that we know can have harmful effects on our health.
1: Tanya Alirete, is there anything else that you would like the listeners to know?
2: Yeah, I would like to say that this study looked at environmental exposures, such as air pollution, and we think that these can play an important role in infant health. And results from this study suggest that that's possibly through impacts on the developing gut microbiome. But of course, more research is warranted. This is its first study of its kind. And I think overall, the study adds to the growing body of literature that air pollution exposure, even during infancy, may alter the gut microbiome which we think has important implications for growth and development. And that's
1: currently an area of investigation for our research. Tanya Alderete is assistant professor of integrative physiology at CU Boulder and a leading researcher on the connection between air quality and the gut microbiome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks to Shannon Young for that report. Dr. Alderete is a co-author on the paper Postnatal exposure to ambient air pollutants is associated with the composition of the infant gut microbiota at six months of age. That paper was recently published in the journal Gut Microbes. You are listening to How on Earth? The KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. One of the many mysteries about life is how a basically straight strand of 400 or so amino acids gets folded into intricate shapes inside our cells—shapes that let protein carry energy in the body, or communicate with other molecules, fight invaders, and do this with folded shapes as different as a statue of Michelangelo is different from a bird, a boat, or the branches of a tree. We have a glimmer more about the mystery of how proteins get their proper shape, thanks to a company called Alphafold that is part of Google's artificial intelligence consortium known as DeepMind. Last week, two game theory scientists with Alphafold received one of the most lucrative prestigious science prizes in the world, a $3 million breakthrough prize for innovation. Alphafold has won acclaim for predicting the complicated origami and spaghetti bowl-type foldings that proteins in our bodies take on to help our cells Help us do and be alive. Insights gleaned from AlphaFold may lead to faster drug discoveries and possibly also a deeper understanding of things like diet and sleep. To learn more about AlphaFold, How on Earth's Shelley Schlender spoke with Boulder scientist and entrepreneur Larry Gold. They begin their conversation about protein folding with Leventhal's Paradox. Leventhal was a physicist, and 50 years ago, he pointed out that our trillions of tiny human cells, each one, can properly fold a protein in about a minute. But the process has so many steps. For a person to carry out all the checks and double checks to properly fold the same protein would take years. Billions of years. Here's Boulder's Larry Gold talking to Shelley about alpha-fold and Leventhal's paradox.
3: We know how long that takes a protein to fold. It takes less than a minute. And when he, as a physicist, computed with reasonable numbers the time it would take to fold if you had to make contact, come apart, make contact, come apart, it was the age of the universe.
4: Okay, so you're saying that for a protein to go from being basically a ribbon, a straight line, to being something that's intricately folded so it can do all of its many and, tasks. And properly. And properly folded. It takes just a minute for a cell to be doing this. Mm-hmm. But if you look at how many places it has to touch and go back and fold and touch and fold, it would take more than…
3: 5 billion years or 10 billion years or 14 billion years. They're all the same. Big numbers.
4: One minute in real life versus 5 billion years is how long it would take to fold one protein.
3: That's right, and he considered that to be a paradox, and he was right. So DeepMind solved it, and I'll tell you a little bit more because it's incredibly important. Google bought them several years ago, so I wanna use my hands to tell you where they're going.
4: Your hands? These are my hands. Okay, we're gonna describe your hands as you tell this then. So
3: you have this long linear ribbon that 400 things and it has to fold up and they've had a contest going on for a long time that anybody could enter computer scientists biochemists everybody entered it and they all did bad jobs and the way they would do it is they would get a raw sequence and they'd fold it and you know they'd say here it is Here's the folding structure, three dimensions from a long tape. And, and then you would get to see how you did. And nobody did very well. DeepMind took that problem on as a Google company and solved it. It's so clever. you can't, They couldn't solve the problem the 5 billion years or the 10 billion year problem.
4: Did they just find a Harry Potter magic wand?
3: Uh, yeah I don't i I never read or watched any Harry Potter movies but, but they did it in a way that people have been trying to do for a long time and failed. and then, as a company, a commercial company, they then made in their computers, they folded all the proteins that matter for science, all twenty thousand human proteins, all... 20,000 mouse proteins, because that's an experimental organism we care about, all 20,000 nematode proteins, another experimental model, flies, yeast, and bacteria.
4: This would hint that it might make it easier for scientists to go back through all the folds and see what happens when a cell is healthy, what happens when it's sick, where are the kinks in the folds?
3: Yes, and more. So yes, but more, and more, not but more, and more. And they said to the world, you can have all of this for free, and you can use it any way you want.
4: Google said that? Yeah. Well, so we can assume that perhaps there'll be some benefit to them as a company for sharing this open source data.
3: Lots and lots of my friends are already partners with them. Folding the proteins they care about, that they've been studying for years.
4: Are they saying that they're getting faster breakthroughs by using this Google database of folded proteins?
3: Yes. It doesn't end there. And I'll tell you what I predicted. I'm so excited about this. I mean, that's like puffery. Sorry about that, guys. And what I knew they would do and they are doing right now. You know that I care about omics.
4: Can you tell people what an omic is? Sure.
3: Genomics, proteomics, transcriptomics, metabolomics. So omics is some word in Greek or Latin that I no longer remember what it is. We can look it up, but I don't care. And omics is a deep cataloging of some phenomenon that has to do with either DNA, that's genomics, RNA, that's transcriptomics proteins that's proteomics. And in the proteomics group, you have protein concentrations in blood. That's what we do at somologic because we think biomarkers will show up there. A very interesting field that I know very, very well is something called interactomics, where a protein is in a cell, and you wonder, huh, Does that protein in its folded structure ever talk to another protein by making contact with that other protein?
4: With that interactomics, is that right?
3: or The interactome.
4: Interactome. Is that basically questions such as how does our brain send signals to cells about how to take in energy?
3: It's uh, smaller than that.
4: How does a piece of energy or food coming to a cell... How does the transporter send a signal that says, so it's okay, make, take me, this let in? Let make it simpler.
3: Red cells carry oxygen from place to place in your body. And the molecule that does that is hemoglobin. Hemoglobin binds oxygen. Huh. So the red cell has an oxygen binder inside of it, and that molecule that's inside of it has four monomers of protein two called alpha and two called beta, the interactome would find, if you did the experiment, what is it that makes the alpha monomers interact themselves and interact with the beta monomers to make the globin molecule, which is the molecule that carries oxygen around, okay? So it's a deep fundamental question of how do proteins interact with each other? And these guys did what is called a docking experiment. They now had all the proteins folded for humans, mice, yeast, different thing. And then they docked. So I'm using my hands now for those of you in the radio. I'm sorry, my left hand is a a picture of, of a folded protein of some extraordinary, exquisite folding thing that deep mind predicted from its primary sequence. And then you could have every other protein. That I've got my right hand up in a different shape. And now you can imagine that those two proteins interact. It's called binding. So you have all these things that interact with each other. Making a unit is what the interactome does. So these guys at DeepMind, they were the only ones in the world with every structure for every protein done in the computer. And they figured out how to ask what proteins talk to what other proteins. And they did that and published. So they have a in silica version of the interactome that is a reflection of what people have worked on for 50 years. And they did something very simple. They docked. It's called docking. In the computer, two shapes to find how they fit together.
0: Thanks to Shelley for that conversation with Boulder scientist and entrepreneur Larry Gold. We'll link to a webinar that features AlphaFold and its protein folding discoveries on our website. that's all for this edition of how on earth our executive producer is beth bennett this week's show was produced by yours truly joel parker additional contributions by shannon young and shelly Schlender. our theme music was written and produced by josh cutler additional music from jacob collier visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes extended interviews and you can subscribe to our podcast through itunes and follow us on facebook and twitter